So, um, as we get started, how many of you guys were wondering what direction we were going this morning? I don't know what you guys did on Thursday, by the way. So, is anybody wondering what direction we were going as Blake finished out Mark this yes, past week? Were you wondering? And thankfully, uh, for the grace of our pastor who understands that we are all bivocational, um, and I did not get him a passage by Thursday night because, let's be honest, the vast majority of prep came between 5 and 9 a.m. this morning. Um, that's where we're at. But I am very excited for the direction that we're going because as we rounded out Mark this past week, and I believe, Blake, we were in Mark since August, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so as we rounded out the last however many months since August, I'm bad at math, looking at Mark, there's a couple just big picture key themes that we're going to dive into that Blake and I will dive into over the course of the next couple weeks. But I'd love Mark trivia time before we get going. If you were to say three things that were big picture things that Blake, hey, you don't count because, he, yeah, all right, early buzzer, you're not counting. You can get number two. All right. Three big themes, big things that Blake emphasized over and over and over and over and over again from the book of Mark. What would those three things be? You cannot be related to Blake until number two. Yes. Any ideas? All right, give us a hint, Hattie. You can go number one. Okay, the time has come, right? The time is fulfilled. Any idea number two? The kingdom is here. All right, number three. Turn away. Kind of, yeah, you're you're on the right track. Yeah, you kind of got it. All right, repent and believe. Repent and believe. That is, yeah, you're right. All right, so, right, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe. Over and over again since August, Blake has been saying those three things. So, the next couple weeks, we are going to overview Mark, starting today with the time is fulfilled. Next week, going into... Thank you, the kingdom is here, and the following week being repent and believe. So, let's, am I correct, Blake? Okay, okay, good, I want to make sure. Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> All right, so we're going to pray and we are going to get going. God, um, man, thanks for this morning. Thanks for a soundboard uh, that isn't reverberating in my ears. Um, thanks for uh, your word. Thanks for worship this morning where we look at a passage um, or a book as a whole like today um, and are just in awe of who you are, um, of the fact that you do turn graves into gardens. And as we put ourselves in the situation of those who are hearing Mark um, for the first time, and understand that, that those graves are very realistic and um, kind of imminent. And so, God, I pray as, as we look at the, this morning that we are challenged uh, to see you in a bigger, different light um, and to, to be changed and live differently because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have a question. How many of you guys get obsessive over things? Random things in life. I get obsessive. Okay. So, Marcus, give us an example. What is something you get obsessive over in life? Um, formatting a Word document. Ooh, brutal. Formatting a Word I have never had an obsessiveness over formatting a Word document. Um, it's, it's, hey, we're going to run with it, though. All right. <laughs> it's got a whole thing going. I don't fit in the equation because I don't care about either. Um, but... We get obsessive over things in life, right? For me, I get obsessive over exercise, for instance, right? And when I'm obsessive over exercise, I look very myopically at, like, the day, 
right? And I look at today and I wake up and let's say I didn't get in the gym in the morning and then I'm like angry at myself for the remainder of the day because I'm just focusing on the right now, like this obsessive thing and it could be anything, right? But when I take a couple steps back and I look at the long-term trajectory, does me missing the gym one day really matter that much? Maybe. <laughs> to my mental health, possibly. But in the overall scheme of things, it's really not the end of the world, right? When I take a, a couple steps back and I look and I say, all right, like, I missed today, but there's six other days in the week. We'll figure this thing out. We'll be all right because this is a lifetime thing. It changes my approach to it. And so what we're doing today as we've been myopically looking at Mark passage by passage and seeing things about God, now we're going to take a couple steps back and look holistically at where does Mark fit into the reality of the entire Bible? How does this make sense? And as I was studying for this this week, or really uh, yesterday and today, as we were looking at it, I was just kind of in awe of who God is. The reality of the God that we serve that takes a book like Mark and the original context in which it's written and how impactful that is for the way that we live and the way that we operate today. It's really incredible when we think about it through that light. So, I want to do uh, Mark and trivia as we continue through. If we were to say, what is one term that Jesus used to describe himself, what would that term be? All right, Hattie. The son of man. man. Look at you. It's like you're a pastor's kid or something. Okay. (laughs) The son of man. As we look through the book of Mark, we see Jesus consistently using this term, the Son of Man, to describe himself, right? And when we see that, we we see it many different times throughout the book of Mark as he's describing himself, but it says something specifically to the fulfillment that's coming in this book as we put it in the context of the entire Bible. So where else do we see the term Son of Man used in Scripture? Any other ideas? Okay, Adam, what else? Any other ideas? It's used 107 times in the Old Testament. Okay. Oh, did you guys talk about this on Thursday night, even without my preemptiveness? Okay. 107 times in the Old Testament, the term son of man is used, predominantly as an idiom to reference humanity. Right? To reference the, the reality of being human, human nature, the human experience. And David starts us out just looking at Psalm 8, 3 and 4, which I don't know if you guys have it right here. Wait, did you guys get, did you guess Son of Man because it was already on the screen? No. Okay, good. All right. I'm just making sure. Okay. So David tells us in Psalm 8, 3 and 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What's David doing here? David is juxtaposing the son of man, the human experience, us, with the greatness of God, right? He's saying these two things are, are separate ideas. And as he looks and he looks at the works of the heavens and the works of God's hands and he looks at himself, he's saying, who am I? Who am I compared to the greatness of who you are, right? If it's an idiom, why do we think that this is the term that Jesus uses throughout the book of Mark to describe himself? What is he trying to say? Next, Mark and trivia thing, who is the context of who is hearing Mark for the first time? What do we know about this group of people? You're out at this point, Addie. 
What do we know about the, the, the original audience of Mark? We've been talking about it since, since August. Who were they? Okay. Is the church where? Rome. Okay. And what's going on in Rome at the time of Mark's writing? They're being persecuted by Nero. Right? So we can imagine the reality of what this group of people is going through. And there's a reason that Mark specifically, that Christ uses, but that Mark specifically emphasizes this idea of the Son of Man. Because what he's saying about himself, what he's saying about himself is that he, he can relate to the human experience. Right? He is fully human. Right? The reality is these people are suffering and dying and watching their friends be tortured and killed and put on stakes and fed to lions. He's saying, I'm the Son of Man. Right? I am human. I know what you're going through. The unbelievable nature, as we think about the Bible of a, as a whole, of the fact that we serve a God who is imminent and close to us. No other religion in the world gives us that. We serve a God who's intimate. And what Jesus is saying is he describes himself as the son of man, is I know your experience. Right? As you're reading this in Rome and hearing this for the first time, you're saying he resonates with me. Right? The king of the universe did put on skin and became fully human. But what's interesting when we see son of man is we get another definition of son of man in scripture. It takes us over to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is fulfilled in Mark through the son of man is that God put on skin and comes in dominion. Right? God put on skin and will come and have dominion and eternal reign Forever, there's a reason that Jesus uses this term about himself because it says everything about who he is. It says everything about his imminent nature, right, and his glory and dominion, all wrapped up in three words. The Gospel Coalition tells us, we know that the Son of Man rules his kingdom by means of his weakness, though he will one day come again in power to finally destroy all of his enemies and take his rightful place as the visible king of creation. We serve a God who is so close to our brokenness that he's willing to display his radical power through the nature of a Roman torture device. A God who is so meek and so close to us that he's willing to put on skin and die ultimately to step into his authority and power. That's reckless, it doesn't make sense. But how powerful of a connection is that for those who are reading this and hearing this in Rome? the reality of the eternal perspective. Because you can imagine the powerless feeling that these people have, right? Being hunted in Rome. And you guys ever been hunted before? Like by your government? No, like we haven't experienced that. Ooh, Easter egg hunts are awesome. We're glad you were hunting the eggs and no one was hunting you, right? There is no more powerless feeling in the world than what these people were feeling in Rome. And most of us have probably never experienced that. But what's our human nature, right? If there's someone hunting us down, what's our human reaction to that? What do we want to do? Maybe run. What do we have? We have two. We have a flight or a flight, right? So my, my natural response is to fight, right? That's, that's my natural bent. 
And so um, some of you guys know this. In, in 2018, um, I was in East Africa. Um, and as we, as we came into the city that we were in, we ended up having a car accident. Brakes went out on the car, um, ended up uh, hitting, hitting someone on a motorcycle rolling the car onto the side of the road. Um, and in that region of the world, um, oftentimes it's, it's kind of vigilante justice type deal, right? Um, so roll off on the side of the road and immediately get swarmed by a mob of 200 people, right? Pulled us out through the windows of the car, start beating us, is very interesting situation. My natural response in that was to start to fight back, right? As I'm getting swarmed by people, I'm gonna fight back. What would have happened had I done that? probably would have lost, probably would not have gone well for me, right? The natural feeling of fight is the opposite of what was the best thing for me to do, which was to remain silent and not say anything, right? And then from there, we went into Jinja in Uganda, and specifically the organization I was working with, we worked with a group of people that were displaced from northern Uganda. Any of you guys ever heard of Joseph Kony? No. Yeah. So Lord's Resistance Army, Joseph Kony, uh, anything that you guys have seen of child soldiers, East Africa, that's, that's Uganda, northern Uganda. And so we were working with a group of people that were living in Jinja, which is a city in the southern part of the country, who had all been displaced from northern Uganda. And I was sitting in huts with some of the poorest people you can um, probably imagine and listening to their stories of what it was like to run, what it was like to flee, what it was like to be in a village when you're being hunted and your huts are being burned down and your family members are being killed and the reality of that situation, right? We can't imagine that, but that's what the church in Rome is going through, right? And as they look at Christ, they see that true power is in submission. And true power is in powerlessness, which ultimately leads us to our next fulfillment that we see coming from Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53, if you guys are familiar with the passage, uh, was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, 700 years before the birth of Christ, actually, interestingly, they won't even read from it in the synagogue because they don't know what to do with it. Um, and Isaiah 53 gives us this picture of something that is to be fulfilled. So we're going to read verses 1 through 7 here. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for one, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We see the fulfillment of the Son of Man from Daniel and from Psalms and from Ezekiel, and we see the fulfillment of the suffering servant in the book of Mark. The suffering servant from Isaiah 53 that plays itself out in the book of Mark as Christ steps into the fulfillment of a prophecy that was written about him 700 years prior. How many chapters, Mark and trivia again, how many chapters of the book of Mark 
did he spend specifically looking at the passion narrative and Jesus' walk to the Christ? Any ideas off the top of your head? Six. How many chapters are in the whole book? 16. Okay. Six of 16 chapters is focused on Jesus going to the cross. What is Mark demonstrating for the people of Rome? That he is the suffering servant. That Christ has done for them what was prophesied in advance. What was the term that Mark used over and over and over again? It starts with an I throughout the entire book. Immediately. Right? He's pushing them to one place and being very choice with his words because he knows that his readers don't have much time to read them. And what he wants them to know is that the Son of Man, the one who has all dominion and power and authority, is imminently close to them as they walk through suffering themselves. And he wants them to have the model of the suffering servant who has gone before them in the model that they're supposed to look at as they walk into their imminent deaths. That's what he's showing them. So in Mark 15 we see how the suffering servant plays out. Verses four through five says, and Pilate asked, again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. He opened not his mouth. Then it continues on in 33 to 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Imagine reading this letter in Rome. How does Mark end that statement? The centurion comes to see that he was the king of the universe. What do you think this means for people who are reading it, who are looking at centurions coming to hunt them down? As they look at their model, at their king, who has walked to the cross in submission as the suffering servant, as the son of man who will come again in power and authority, but yet submitted to the will of God, to the death on a cross so that a centurion who's putting him on the cross can come to know him. That's radical. What does it look like for you in Rome as you're walking to your own death, knowing as I humbly submit to the will of God, this might be for the man executing me to come to know him. That's what Mark's showing these people. So why does it matter? One, as, as we live in modern day America, we're obviously not being hunted down and persecuted at the moment, right? But everything that Mark is telling us and everything that the people in Rome are living flies directly contrary to so much of what we hear in modern American Christianity about what this looks like. Jesus did not come to make you happy. God does not exist to make you wealthy. None of those things are true. What he's called you to is suffering. What he's called you to is humility. What he's called you to is submission for a purpose. He hasn't called you to be wealthy and happy. You don't show up in the Bible. Anywhere. I don't show up in the Bible. This has never been about me. But it points to something that I'm supposed to carry out now. So a couple just quick takeaways as we wrap down our time. One, we see the suffering servant 
there is an obvious equation to the reality of the gospel right now. I don't know that there are two better verses throughout the entire Bible that sum up the gospel than Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. And I want us to sit with these verses for a second and think about the reality of our situation. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. Me, just like you, we ran away. We ran the other way. And God, in his mercy and grace, laid on Christ the iniquity of all of us. That's it. But now there's something that it means for us today as we're not sitting in Rome, but we are sitting here. What does this mean now? Why do they keep their eyes fixed on the Son of Man and the suffering servant? It's because they're called to a mission, right? They're called to something, right? They are called to walk faithfully in what Christ has called them to in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, under, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you follow Jesus, you're probably not going to make a lot of friends. right? As we follow Jesus, the world hates him. right? As we follow Jesus, there, are going, there is going to be cursed persecution. There are going to be things that come against you, but you are blessed because of it. Don't try to want to run away from it. Now, we're not masochistic. We're not running towards persecution, but at the same point when it comes, we faithfully take it on with joy because we know the one who went before us and the one that we're following. Our mission as we see the broken and dying world in front of us is to humbly submit to the will of the Father just as Christ humbly submitted to the will of the Father to the cross. Right? But there's a promise at the end of Matthew 28 that says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I wanted to throw this in as well because I think this is practical for all of us. What does this mean for us in marriage and relationships? Why does that matter? So in Mark 14, Jesus says, In Gethsemane, as he's going to the cross, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus willfully submitted to the will of the Father and carried out his mission. Willfully submitted to the will of the Father. All right, so what does that mean for us in marriage? And I only use marriage because it's the most close human relationship that we have. And the most intimate one is we carry out the reality of mission and what God calls us to. The submission that we see in Christ is we are called to do that with each other. In Ephesians 5, it starts out in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, our man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This seems like a weird connection, and I know you guys are trying to figure out where in the heck I'm going. But as we think about this idea of the suffering servant, right, and the son of man and what is fulfilled in Mark, and we carry this out in the closest relationships that we have around us, the reality is that we don't have to win. As we look at Christ and the one who silently walked to the cross and we look at our interpersonal conflict, what does it look for us to what does it look like for us to look at Jesus and have that impact the way that we deal with one another? I mean, how many of us inside of marriage or inside of relationships, as we get into tension, we struggle with wanting to win all of those interactions. I struggle with that with Abby on a daily basis. Right? What does it look for me, look like for me to graciously and humbly submit and not try to win an argument with my wife. And I know that sounds weird, but as we look at the suffering servant, it has to impact the way we interact with each other on the clo- in the closest relationships that we have. Right? It's never been about me winning. It wasn't about Christ winning. He ultimately won through his silence. What does it look like for us to carry that into all of our close interpersonal relationships that we have in life? What does it look like for us to carry that out as the church? Right? As a group of people who are saying we are going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ because ultimately we have a mission. Just like marriage is telling us in Ephesians that our mission is that the world sees Christ in his church. Right? And as husbands sacrificially love their wives, they see Jesus laying his life down for the church. And as wives humbly submit to their husbands, they see Christ humbly submitting to the will of the Father. Right? In all of our interactions, as we bring this down into the minutia and the details of our daily life, it has to impact the way that we live. So as we finish and as we round this out, right, Mark is pointed with every single thing he says. Mark has a reason for every word that he uses. And as we look at the fulfillment of prophecy that goes and spans the entire Bible, we see this idea of the Son of Man, the God who is intimate with us, and has dominion and a power and authority over eternity. And we see the suffering servant who in his radical nature took on the cross, said nothing so that we could have life and life abundantly now and life eternally. Right? That's the beauty and the reckless nature of what we see in Mark. And so as we aren't necessarily sitting here in persecution, we can also look at ourselves and say, how does this impact every moment and every interaction that I have day in and day out, right? That's what I have for you guys this morning. So let's pray. God, um, thanks for, for Mark. Thanks for um, how you describe yourself as, as the son of man. Um, thanks for being intimate with us, for, for loving us radically, um, radically enough to take on um, our iniquity, right? And thank you that by your wounds, we are healed. God, I pray that, that this impacts the way that we live, that it impacts the way that we interact with each other, that it impacts the vision that we have for the mission that you've called us into. Thanks for your word. Uh, thanks for the cross. Thanks for the empty tomb. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.